We continue our our study of this 25th chapter of uh, the Westminster Confession, thinking about the topic we began to consider last week, the doctrine of ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And what I want us to think about today is, uh, go back to that question, um, what is the church? What is its identity? And by asking that question, we're really asking, who are we? as the church. Now, in recent years, I I think one of the great doctrines that has been neglected or forgotten or rejected has been the doctrine of the church. The church has, I think, come to be viewed as something optional, even unnecessary for followers of Christ. And I, I really don't think it's an exaggeration to say that at least in our country today, that the predominant view among professing Christians would be that the church is not essential, but it's optional. And Edmund Clowney, in his book, The Church, and he wrote this in 2005, and I think it's proven to be true again and again. He said this, he said, Do Christians need to think again about the doctrine of the church? Many would answer no. Mention the church and they begin to smell the musty odor of churchianity. It rises from the crypts of institutional religions and permeates the seat cushions of formal traditions. Many today associate the church with mere human tradition, and they think it unnecessary for New Testament believers. But I would submit to you, and I think you already know this, that the Bible says something very different. We read from 1 Timothy, where God's Word calls the church the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the, church, it's the place where God dwells among His people. It's the house of the living God. We're told that it is the bride for whom Christ died. And if Christ died for the church, then that means it is something precious and essential. It's not something optional. Christ loves his church. When Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry, we are told that his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Christ is consumed with a burning, zealous love for his church. This body of redeemed people, he zealously loves us. And this means that if we have no doctrine of the church, then we can really have no doctrine of ourselves. We can't understand who we are in Christ without the church nor can we understand what our purpose is in this world. Jesus never intended his sheep to live and prosper in this world apart from the church. So I want us to briefly consider some characteristics of the church of Jesus Christ that I hope will help us to understand who we are, and remind us of the importance of the church. I hope this will elevate our view of the church. First and foremost, we are told that the church is owned by Christ. 
That's emphasized multiple times in chapter 25 of the Confession. The church is owned by Christ, and it's echoing what Jesus said here in in Matthew 16, when he said, I will build my church. And in the Greek, that word my is given particular stress. It's as though Jesus is underlining that word, putting it all in all caps. It is mine. Jesus is emphasizing his ownership of the church. And this is striking because Jesus didn't speak this way very often. The things of which Jesus said, these are mine, are relatively few. But here he makes an emphatic statement and he calls the church my church. It's his. It's his beloved possession. And admittedly, I think it's, it's, it's hard for us to believe that Jesus glories in the ownership of the church. When we, we look at the condition of the church, we look at ourselves, we think, why would Jesus want to glory in his ownership of us? But he does. And we could think of it this way. You could go to a pawn shop and maybe for $5 buy an old beat up acoustic guitar. You bring it home, it's essentially worthless. But what if you got that guitar signed by a famous musician? What happens? It goes from worthless to priceless. Because we value things that belong to famous people. We value things that have their signature on them. The fact that they owned it made it valuable. And as we think about the church, we need to remember the church to which we belong is owned by Jesus Christ. His name is on it. It's not our church, it's his church, and that makes it precious. And I think part of the reason people think so little of the church today is we think it's ours. And it should become even more precious to us when we realize how Christ came to possess the church. Ephesians 5.25, we read that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In Acts 20.28, Paul calls the church the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. Jesus purchased the church with his very life, his very blood. And it is his church, it is the bride for whom he died. And we need to remember this. We need to come to grips with this. We need to let this elevate our view of the church. It belongs to Jesus. It's a blood-bought thing. He bought it with his own blood. How can we not value something like that? We need to keep this in mind when we're tempted to be critical of the church. We need to remember that these are the people that Christ loved and gave himself for. He died for the church. And moreover, I think our view of the church should be elevated by the fact that though Christ 
owns the house, he invites us into the house, and he gives us the honor of having responsibilities. And we read of one of those, of the duty of the church to uphold the truth of the gospel and of God's word, which centers on Jesus. That's the idea of the church being a pillar and buttress of the truth. We are to hold the truth up in this world. We especially need to keep all of this in mind because we're going to be tempted. Because secondly, we see that the church is made up of imperfect people. Again, the confession deliberately underlines this. The church at times is more or less pure. And that's because it's made up of imperfect people and it's led by imperfect men. We read from Matthew 16, and it's really a striking turn of events. We heard how Peter, the, the prominent leader in the early church, he made his great profession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But immediately on the heels of that confession, he puts his foot in his mouth and he shows himself to be completely out of touch with the things of God. Jesus began to speak about the necessity of his impending death and resurrection. And it says that Peter rebuked him and said, no way, Lord, that's not going to happen to you. And we see Jesus then sharply rebuking him for being out of touch with the things of God. And even further than that, he says, you're thinking more like Satan. You see, Peter demonstrated that he was a weak, imperfect sinner. And yet he still was a chosen apostle. He still was commissioned to serve as elder and pastor and leader in the church. He was appointed by Christ. Christ knew all of this about him. Christ was firsthand witness to all of his failures. But he still commissioned him. And friends, we need to remember this. As we think about our responsibility to pastors and elders in the church, we will be the first to tell you we are imperfect men. We don't get everything right. We make mistakes. We are often out of touch with the things of God. And yet your leaders are the leaders that God has appointed to you. In Hebrews 13, we are called to obey our leaders. Not perfect leaders, but our leaders. And you need to let this lead you to pray for us, that we would be setting our minds on the things of God and not the things of men, that we would be sensitive to the shepherd's voice as we lead his flock. There should be an understanding and a sympathy with these imperfect leaders because in the end, the church is made up of imperfect people. And we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. It's not a book about moral upstanding people who did everything right. 
but it's about a bunch of sinners who looked to Christ for grace and were forgiven and sustained. We need to remember that we are not perfected yet. We're going to fail one another. The church at times is going to be an ugly place. I've heard this illustrated before in terms of a building site, and it resonates with me now because I have one of the bathrooms in my house all torn apart, and it looks awful. And it's hard to imagine it in its finished state actually being nice. And that's much like the church. We, we're a building construction site right now, and things can be ugly. We're not, we're not finished, as it were. But if you look at a, a construction site, and then you drive by a year later, and you see the finished product, and you're amazed. And what the Bible does for us is it reminds us of the finished product. In Revelation 12, we have this glorious picture of the church triumphant, and she is beautiful. We need to remember that and let it fill us with patience. Patience with our brothers and sisters, knowing that we are not yet perfected. <clears throat> Now, the church is sometimes more or less pure, led by imperfect leaders made up of imperfect people. But thirdly, we see the church is under attack. The church is always under attack. That is why we are called the church militant in this world. We're involved in a battle, in a fight. <clears throat> and Jesus rebuked to Peter. He said something very disturbing. He said, get behind me, Satan. And Jesus was indicating that Satan was at work to oppose God's plan in his church. And what was Satan's goal in the temptations of Jesus? It was simply to get him to avoid the cross. That was the gist of the temptation in the wilderness. Take your kingdom another way. Avoid the cross. And here we find Jesus, or we find Peter, saying something along the very same lines. And friends, we need to remember that Satan does not want to see the church prosper. And the way he tempts us in many ways is the same way he tempted Jesus. Avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. You don't really need the cross. Okay, you've heard about that. Let's move on to something bigger and better, something different. You see, Satan wants to divert his, the church from the cross of Jesus Christ. And it is tragic that so many so-called churches today have fallen victim to this tactic where the, the cross of Jesus Christ is no longer central. Where the lie has been bought. But the answer to growth, the answer to joy is not preaching about the cross, but it's self-help. And we need to guard our own hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Because Satan will gladly give us any excuse to hate the church. 
He'll give us any excuse to withdraw from her, to do our own thing. How often does he get us to focus on the weaknesses and the flaws of our brothers and sisters? To focus on the weakness, weaknesses of our leaders. And he tempts us to hate the church and, and to leave her. And in our sinful flesh, we are all too often ready and willing to buy those excuses. It's a tragedy that so many professing Christians have bought these lies and come to believe that they don't need the church. That they don't need all these people. That they don't need leaders telling them what to do. That they don't need to hear from an average sinful guy preaching the gospel. We need to seek Christ in this regard and ask for his spirit's protection because the church in this life will always be under attack. And that temptation is ever present. It's sometimes subtle. Avoid the cross. Avoid the cross. Get involved in these other things. Avoid the cross. But this doesn't mean that the church is on the defensive, because we see finally that the church is a church on the attack. It's a church on the attack. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Very often that's misunderstood as a defensive operation on the church's part, right? We think, well, we we hunker down and we just try to withstand the attack of the enemy. But gates don't attack you. You attack gates. You see, this envisions an offensive operation, an attack by the church on this world. It reminds us of the great honor and purpose we've been given, that we are God's chosen agent of change in this world. That we are the means, we are the vehicle by which Christ brings his gospel to the nations and subdues them under his rule and reign. You ever think about this? We, we gather in this little room or a small group of people have you ever thought about the fact that we are assaulting the gates of hell? And when we're empowered on the Lord's Day, we go out and live our lives and we live for the glory of Christ and we bring the gospel to the nations. We are assaulting the gates of hell. We are the church militant and we are told that one day when Christ returns, we will be the church triumphant. And we can be confident of that because Christ will secure victory for us. And again, friends, let this encourage you. It's, it's discouraged. It's easy to get discouraged when we look at the state of many churches today. But let this give you confidence. Christ will not only preserve us, but he will give us the victory. No matter what assaults we endure, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you 
that we are the church that you have purchased with your blood, the one for whom you gave your life, that you are not ashamed to call us your beloved bride. We pray, Lord, that your view of us would let us elevate our view of the church and that we would love the church because you love the church. And Lord, that we would glory in its ownership, that it is yours, it is Christ's. Lord, may we thankfully and confidently take up our responsibilities to be the pillar and buttress of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this world. Guard us against the attacks of the evil one. Guard us against our own sinful hearts. And Lord, make us faithful witnesses. Make us faithful soldiers of the faith that we might be faithful servants assaulting the gates of hell, bringing the gospel of Jesus to a dying world. We ask in your name and pray that it might be for the glory of Christ the King. Amen. Thank you.